0: afternoon crosswalk uh thanks for coming to second service our last second service of the summer um so uh in case you didn't hear yeah we moved back to just one service uh for the summer but that gives us an opportunity to spend all sorts of time on some extra things we can do community building uh go to we're gonna camp we're gonna go to the park we're gonna do all sorts of stuff so we hope that you will join us for the journey Looking forward to that. It is also good to be back with you after a week away in New England. Um, actually, exciting things going at, at our Crosswalk New England campus because they are getting ready to start a, another campus uh, in downtown Boston. Crosswalk, New England is actually outside of Boston in South Lancaster. Um, and where the campus of Atlantic Union College used to be. Now it's just a bunch of empty buildings, which is kind of sad, but a lot of history there. Uh, and, of course, I got to go uh, to Fenway to watch the Red Sox beat my Cincinnati Reds. Um, so you're welcome, Rick. Uh, I, asked, I asked them to, to lose that game for you. So, no, it's a great experience. If you are a baseball fan, Fenway is a must attend park. Uh, So super fun. It's also great to be a part of a movement where you can cross the country and you can go to another church that is like ours in so many different ways. They have their own flavor and their own feel, but they are doing what we're doing and trying to create these transformative gospel spaces. Um, And so it's just the coolest thing. They're great people. They're small people, um, uh, shorter in stature. Uh, but they're great people, so uh, had a great time. But it's good to be home, I don't know about you, but the last two weeks for Pastor Tim's sermons have been good for my faith journey. Hope they were good for yours, if you got to watch them. If you didn't get to watch them, go online, check them out. A lot of good things that he says, but I recognize that for some of us, this may be the first time we're asking some of those serious questions of the faith. And when we start asking the serious questions, when we start really digging down into why we believe what we believe is this still sound? is this still certain is this thing are these things that I want to commit my life to? It can feel like the ground beneath us is shaking. It can feel like you 're on sinking sand right um, i don 't know if you 've ever had the privilege um, or the joy let's say of going through an earthquake um, i 've been through a few, none of them amounted to anything, so it wasn 't that big of a deal but Um, They can be terrifying experiences if you've never been in one. If you live in California, you just know it's another day in paradise. Um, But I happened to go through one not too long ago with a friend of mine. We were staying in San Diego. We were on the top floor of a hotel. Uh, We were right on the water and uh, my friend, his name is Alex Bryan, in case anyone knows and wants to make fun of him later. Alex uh, and I were sharing this room. He had not been in an earthquake before. So in the middle of the night, I wake up from a dead sleep to just Alex screaming my last name. He's just saying, McCoy, McCoy. And I finally wake up and I kind of get my bearings. I realize the building is moving. The uh, pictures on the wall are moving. The uh, lamp on the, on the uh, nightstand is shaking a bit. So I realize what's going on, and I look up, and I see Alex, and he's standing in the doorframe, which is the safest place, although if you're on top of a building, I don't know if that's really going to help you all that much, but he was there, and he clearly had just leapt out of bed wearing just what you need to wear when you sleep, and he was standing in the doorframe that went into the hallway. So had anybody walked by at that time, it would have been an interesting view, but he was standing there, I was in bed, he was screaming for me to move. He clearly wasn't going to leave the safety of the door frame to come and rescue me from any potential future falling ceiling. He was gonna just shout my name from the safety of the doorframe, hoping that I would wake up and go to the other door frame in the, house, in, the, in the hotel room. I didn't, I kinda, I just stayed in bed. It passed pretty quickly, um, but he was like jacked up. He was, you know, adrenaline, and and he turned the news to see if there was any news going on, and then, you know, uh, he said, what do we do? Should we get down, should we leave the hotel, should we go somewhere safe? And I said, actually, I think this is probably a safe place to be. We're on top of a hotel and we're on the water, so when the tsunami comes from the earthquake, this is probably the safest place to be. He's like, oh, you're right. And at at that point, he went and opened the window and started watching the water, and I just rolled over and went to sleep and had a good night's rest. Um, But, uh, that's what it can feel like. It can be terrifying when you feel the earth around uh, underneath you moving. Deconstructing faith can feel like being in an earthquake. Everything around you is shaking, maybe even crumbling, and you're looking for the safest place to be when what you thought was certain is no longer certain. So when we deconstruct, which remember is not the end goal of this process, the end goal of the process is just to find out that which is elemental and essential to hold on to in our faith, and then rebuild something around that. But when we deconstruct, uh, we have to go through some difficult times where we, where do we go for safety when we deconstruct? What can we hold on to when everything else is falling down around us? You see, here's the reality of faith, right? It's not easy. I wish it was, and because it's not easy, many of us, too often walk away from it because we seek the path of least resistance. Right? We seek for that which is easy. We do this in marriages far too often. In marriages, that's um, why the divorce rate is so high because we have this idea that there's this perfect person out there for us somewhere, and if we can find the perfect person out there, then marriage won't feel like so much work. And when it is work, when it is hard, when we go through tough seasons. We can often kind of question, well, should we have gotten into this relationship? Is this the right person? Is there someone else out there for me? And so we can question those kinds of things. We think we must not be with the right person, so we'll go out and try to find someone else. But that's not how it works. Maybe that's how things were meant to work in the beginning. I don't know. But it's not how they work now. Marriage takes work. I have a wedding tomorrow. Um, and and I, I mentioned this in the first service you can you can pray for us it 's going to be a, a bit of a roller coaster ride, possibly um, uh, yeah i won 't say anything more than that because you know we 're recording and i 'm going to post this later, and this is safer that way um, but uh, it 's going to uh, what I tell every couple when I do premarital sessions is that I say when you take your vows on your wedding day, those are not things you just commit to on your wedding day. those are things that you commit to every day of your life going forward. And there are days when that is really easy to commit to because everything's going great, and then there are days when that is really, really difficult to commit to, but that is what commitment looks like. The same is true with baptism. Sometimes when you come up to the place of baptism, that can be difficult because you're having to go from whatever you were before, you're changing your life, you're surrendering your life to Jesus, but on the day of your baptism, man, that's a good day. We baptized Gary a few weeks ago, and that was so much fun. Um, I I didn't mention this at first service, but the coolest thing that Gary said to me uh, when I hugged him, when he came up out of the water, he just hugged me, and he's like, I went all the way under. And I was like, I know you're supposed to. Uh, You know, but he was just so excited. And um, it was a great day. Carter got baptized. Carter Hayes got baptized last weekend. That was a great day. Um, And it's great when everybody's celebrating you and celebrating your decision, but... There are times after that when it can be really hard to say yes to Jesus. It's hard to say yes to Jesus in difficult times. It's hard to say yes to Jesus when your spouse dies. It's hard to say yes to Jesus through an abusive relationship. It's hard to say yes to Jesus through a diagnosis that threatens you or someone close to you. It's hard to say yes to Jesus when your future is so uncertain. If we studied scripture, we'd realize that Jesus told us that's how it works. He told us faith was difficult. He said, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Why is the gate small and the road narrow? Because it's hard. The true Christian faith is countercultural, even counterintuitive at times. When someone hurts us, our natural response is we want to hurt them back, but Jesus says to turn the other cheek and to pray for those who persecute you and love your enemies. Pastor Tim wrote in the series guide this week that Christianity has always been counter-culture. It has always been deeply enmeshed in the breaking down of power structures and the prophetic calling of people to do justice, mercy, compassion, healing, and declaring that God is for you and not against you. Because of this, the gospel is constantly deconstructing the prevalent culture and recommitting itself to love again and again. Now, we'll come back to the comment about love, but let's stay in that countercultural idea idea of the Christian faith for a moment. We're told to love our enemies. We're told that if somebody steals our coat, we should give them our shirt as well. We're told that if we are to gain our life, we should lose their life. This is tough stuff. It's tough because it seems to go against the grain of our human nature. You see, we'd rather the gate was wide and broad not narrow. We want easy. That's why things like the prosperity gospel sounds amazing. You mean if I can just pray the right things, read the right scriptures, and claim the right scriptures, then God has to do what I say. Sounds nice. It's not how it works. And when it doesn't work that way, we can throw our faith out the window. But at least Jesus didn't lie to us when he told us that following him would be tough. He even went so far as to say whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So we have to deny ourselves and we have to take up our cross. I mean a cross is an instrument of death and so he's saying you have to be willing to die in a way. We have to do what we once thought was certain. We we have to die to what we once thought was certain. We have to die to our natural primal impulses of selfishness, anger, hate, and malice. And we have to do it daily, just like we have to daily commit to our marriage and our relationships. His way instead of our way. And this is not easy. There's a great story of a Jesuit philosopher by the name of uh, John Cavanaugh. And in 1975, he had made a decision that he wanted to travel to Calcutta, India, so that he could volunteer for a few months at the home of the dying with Mother Teresa. I would have loved to do something like this, Um, but John was going through his own season of deconstruction and struggling with his faith, and he wanted to spend a little bit of time with Mother Teresa. He thought to himself, you know, if anyone could help him right now, it's Mother Teresa, someone who walks so closely with Jesus, and so he went, um, and on the first day, he got to meet Mother Teresa, and she said, is there something that I can do for you? And he said, well, yeah, actually, (laughs) I mean, this is the reason why he came all these miles. And so he said, you can pray for me. So Mother Teresa said, well, what is it that I can pray for? And John said, well, you can pray that I could have certainty. And Mother Teresa simply said, no, I won't pray for that. I don't know if you've ever had that happen to you where you ask somebody to pray for you and they say no, but that must have been hard and confusing. And so John said, well, Why? I mean, you seem like you've always had clarity. And Mother Teresa just laughed and said, I have never had clarity. What I have always had is trust. So I will pray that you trust God. Now, in the New Testament, in the Greek, the word for faith is synonymous with the word for trust. So who are you going to trust in? Who are you going to put your faith in? What are you going to believe in? Will you put your trust only in that which you can see, hear, and touch? Will you put your faith only in the things that are proven to give you success, the quote-unquote American dream? Or maybe, just maybe, would you be willing to put your trust into a mystery, into the story of a God Who loved so much, he became a man to prove his love and save humanity from itself. Now, there are all sorts of stories throughout Scripture of people that went through a process of deconstruction, but perhaps the most famous one is the Apostle Paul, then known as Saul when we first meet him in Scripture. He once wrote to the church in Philippi about his former life. He said, I was once a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. He once thought his former beliefs were so valuable and so important that he was willing to kill other people for it. That's, if you remember last week, and Pastor Tim talked about the faith stages, it was the stages of, the stage of simplicity, that first stage when things are right or wrong, black or white, that's where Paul was. He was right, the Christians were wrong, and so he had to eradicate them from existence. But then something happened to Saul. He came face to face with the same Jesus who he thought was dead and incredibly wrong. On the road to Damascus, Saul's journey of deconstruction began. Now, yes, he had three days of being blind. After those three days, and he gets his sight back, he goes about and immediately starts telling people that Jesus is the Messiah. He's been persecuting people. He's been killing people to the opposite. And here he does this 180, a hard turn, and it's hard for people. It's confusing for people. And so some of them try to have him killed, and the disciples send him off for his own protection so he can continue the process of deconstruction. And this is something we don't talk about a whole lot, but Paul, Saul, back then, was out of the limelight for 11 years. 11 years of deconstruction. 11 years of going back through everything that he once thought he knew and understood. But now he was looking through all of that through the lens of Jesus. Everything that he once believed, now he inserted Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ. And everything started to change. But it took 11 years. After this, Saul begins to make statements like these in his letters. And now we know him as Paul. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything else except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. And in one of my favorite passages that Paul ever wrote, a passage that many think uh, became a hymn, we read, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all of creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning and supreme over all who rise from the dead, so he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Paul's journey of deconstruction took 11 years. But then after those 11 years, everywhere he looked, everything he looked at was through the lens of Jesus Christ. The lens of Jesus. In fact, one could say that when Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, that Jesus never again left his eyesight he was always there. Of course, there are other examples of deconstruction. The disciples went through at least three and a half years of deconstruction with Jesus. Everything that they used to know was being questioned, and you can see that through things. I mean, Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, Tim talked about this last week, where he said, Jesus says, you have heard that it is said, but I tell you, he's deconstructing, he's helping them see things in a different way. And the disciples hear Jesus say at least four different times, at least, that we know of, that Jesus is going to be killed. But then when it happened, they all still went running because they couldn't fit that into their paradigm yet. But I think that in the journey, as much as they struggled, they figured out something along the way with Jesus that was important. The end of John 6, after Jesus has a very difficult teaching, a lot of his followers leave, it says. And when they leave... Jesus turns to the disciples and says, are you also going to leave? At which point, Peter said, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that have eternal life. We believe and we know you are the Holy One of God. This is such an important statement because the disciples weren't saying that they understood what Jesus said. They weren't saying, we get it, we've got it figured out, or that they have anything that is certain except that they know that Jesus has the words of eternal life, that he is the Holy One of God. In all their questions, with all their complexities of his teachings, when their previous understandings were being challenged, they held on to Jesus, the Son of God and the giver of life. So in the process of deconstruction, we come to the end of season one of Elemental. We're gonna pick it up again in August with season two, which is about of that reconstruction process, but for at least the next seven weeks, we're going to just let you sit in the rubble of what was once your faith, because we're so nice. But in the summer, I'm excited because our next sermon series is going to be on what we're calling the little letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And what are those letters about? Love, because if there is anything elemental, it is love. So we'll spend some time there. Paul spent 11 years deconstructing. You can make seven weeks, I'm sure of it. Um, But during this time, what will we hold on to in our faith? What will help us keep afloat when it feels like everything around us has come crumbling down? Well, as I was working on my research and uh, spending time on the sermon this week, I kept having this picture in my mind and then I looked into it and wow, I was blown away with something, it's it's what in the uh, in the circles of philosophy people call the floating door conundrum. It ranks right up there with Schrodinger's cat and the ship of Prometheus. Um, and uh, if you're thinking too hard about it, you you shouldn't, because the floating door conundrum comes from a movie, um, and it comes from uh, it, there was this ship, and the ship left one side of the Atlantic Ocean to go to the other side, but it hit something and then it sank, and then the two main characters. Uh, spoiler alert, That yeah, the ship didn't make it. Um, and the two main characters, they're floating in the ocean. One finds a door to float on, but apparently they both can't fit on it. So one survives on the floating door, one dies. Titanic, you know, that's what I'm talking about. Jack, played by Leonardo DiCaprio. Rose, played by Kate Winslet. Um, but here is what I learned about um, this whole thing as I was looking into it, is that it's the 25-year anniversary of the movie Titanic, and apparently... For the last 25 years, people have been debating whether or not Jack could have fit on the door and survived with Rose. This has been a debate people have been having. uh, And and so uh, there's there's forums devoted to this. There are websites devoted to this. It's crazy. It's a fictional, I mean, besides the Titanic sinking, it's a fictional story. So anyway, um, and uh, recently they asked, Kate Winslet and Leo, what they thought, like, could Jack have survived? And I like Kate Winslet's response, because she simply said, yes, he could have survived, move on, people. That was her response. Uh, Jack, Leonardo DiCaprio, he said, no comment. Um, And then James Cameron, actually, if you didn't see this, he made a 25-year documentary about um, the series, about the movie Titanic in that, He has world-renowned scientists who have come together to try and figure out if Jack could have survived. Do you want to know the conclusion? Their answer was that yes, there's a chance he could have survived on the door. There was a chance. But they said because it was only a chance, Jack's character wouldn't have done anything to put Rose at risk. And so he froze to death and died. So that's what they came up with. Um, But if you have been wrestling with this for 25 years, please make an appointment to come and see me because I have things to give you to do that would actually better humanity. But I still had that picture in my head, a picture of them holding on for life to that door because it made me think, what will I cling to when I deconstruct my faith? What is worthy of, of our trust, our faith, when the ground beneath us shakes and everything else feels like sinking sand, what is the rock that we will hold on to to make our stand? What will we cling to to keep us afloat? God made his vows to us, his promises, promises that we are to cling to in tough times, things like he will never leave us and never forsake us, he will be with us always, even to the end of the age. And the ultimate vow that God gave us is Jesus. As Paul wrote in his letter to the Corinthians, all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. Through Jesus, God proved his love for us. Because of Jesus, we have hope. Because of Jesus, we have something and someone to cling to through life's most difficult moments. And when you don't know what that means or what that looks like, when you can't pray, what I do is sometimes all I can do is just say the name of Jesus over and over and over again. And I really think that's one of the most beautiful prayers that anybody could offer. In the early 1800s, a guy by the name of Edward Moat had grown up without a Christian background, without going to church. Um, he, his parents owned a pub and they taught him to make cabinets. So that's what he did with his life. And then he walked by a church one day and he heard a preacher talking about this guy, Jesus. And he walked in and listened. And then he went again and again and again until he gave his life to Jesus. Then one day while he was making cabinets, he had these words come to mind. He wrote them down as a poem. That poem was turned into a hymn. He didn't contribute to any other um, hymn that we know of, but I think that's because he got it right the first time. And it's one that I hope is our prayer. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Where darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Would you stand up with us as we sing that song as our closing prayer tonight. And may it be your heart's cry as we all seek to stand on nothing less than Jesus Christ, our righteousness.